This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hi, Art Curious listeners. Jennifer here. And as promised, I am back with you today to bring some bonus content between seasons as we prep for premiering our 10th season later this fall. And today I have something extra special for you. If you follow Art Curious on social media, you'll know that we recently collaborated with the Top Artist podcast from the awesome website My Modern Met. Top Artists host Jessica Stewart and I discussed artists in art history who have made a major impact, and we've split our conversation into two episodes. The first one dropped about two weeks ago over on Top Artists' feed, and then we are sharing the second half in our show today. So head over to My Modern Met or to the feed for the Top Artist podcast wherever you listen to your pods to hear us wax poetic first on Lewis Hine, Norman Rockwell, Pablo Picasso, and Artemisia Gentileschi, and then carry on with us here today. First, let me introduce you to Jessica. Jessica Stewart is an art historian and contributing writer originally from Massachusetts. She holds a BA in art history from Boston University and an MA from University College London in Renaissance Studies. Her love for Renaissance art led her to move to Rome in 2005. And strangely enough, it was in Rome that a passion for modern and contemporary art developed. Jessica spent many years running a street photography blog, and her archive of Rome street art photos is now part of the Tricani Italian Encyclopedia. She was also the studio manager for Alice Pasquini, who was an internationally recognized street artist for eight years. She's been writing for My Modern Met since 2016, covering everything from art historical topics to contemporary fine art and photography. Starting in August 2020, she became one of the hosts for the Top Artist podcast. So let's jump right into this episode, the second half of Art Curious's collaboration with Top Artist. So joining me here today for the first ever collaborative Art Curious episode is Jessica Stewart. Jessica, how are you today? Doing great. How are you? I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to have you here. So I have been a fan of My Modern Met for a number of years now. It's one of my favorite sites, both as a historian and also as a curator, because I've used it, truth be told, to source ideas for exhibitions and to find new artists who are creating some amazing works that I would then end up hopefully work with. So can you tell us first a little bit about My Modern Met and then more specifically about Top Artist? Yeah, sure. Happy to. So My Modern Met was started in 2008 as a way to spotlight creativity. And the mission of the site is really to talk about art, culture, design, inspiring stories, and you know, spotlight all the great creative work that's going on in the world today and to put a little bit of positivity out into the world, which I think we all need right now. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Last year in 2020, we decided to branch out and start a podcast, which is how the My Modern Met Top Artist podcast started. And what we do is it's a bi-weekly podcast and we spend some time chatting with some of our favorite artists, a lot of whom have been featured on the site 
uh, over the years and talk to them a little bit about, you know, what makes them tick? What's their creative process? How did they first get into the arts? And we've talked to everyone from Steve McCurry to finger painter Iris Scott to a digital multimedia artist, Rafiq Anadol. So a little bit of everyone. And coming up, we're going to start our season two of the podcast in early August. And we're going to be talking with artists who are making an impact in in the world through their art in some sort of way. And so that's really one of the reasons that we have gotten together to do this collaboration today is that we're now taking a little bit of an art historical look at this idea of artists who are making an impact. So in our previous episode over on Top Artist, we went ahead and gave four examples of these key artists who made amazing impacts in art history. So for the audience, if you haven't already gone over, go over now to Top Artist, subscribe and download that episode, and then you can come back here and listen to the second half of our conversation. So Jessica, when we were coming up with the topics for the show, you mentioned, I think almost right at the start, that you really wanted to discuss Gordon Parks. So let's start by hearing a little bit about, in your opinion, what can you tell us about Gordon Parks? Gordon Parks is an incredible photographer and photojournalist. He is the first African-American photographer and writer at Life Magazine. And incredibly, he was self-taught. Um, he grew up in a segregated Kansas. He got interested in photography and bought a camera from a pawn shop and just started going out and documenting the world around him. He moved to Chicago in 1940 and started documenting the African-American experience in the city where his photographs really made an impact and this got him noticed so much so that he won a fellowship and then eventually he went on to work for the the FSA. He was also a big fashion guy and did photography for Glamour and Vogue and really used his photography to make a commentary on racism in America, but also made an impact just by being himself and representing an African-American man in a position of power at a time when you didn't really see that that much. And so he would sort of subtly insert images about the effects of racial segregation and everything like that into his work. And that's just the tip of the iceberg with Gordon Parks, because he goes on to do lots of other things, become the first major black film director. Um, he did a lot of black exploitation films. He actually directed the original Shaft movie. He co-founded Essence Magazine. I did not know this. <laughs> yeah, he co-founded Essence. He did a lot of writing. So he really was a Renaissance man. And he really continued with his photography right up until his death um, and into the 2000s. So just a super impactful artist. I think in some ways, there's that correlation between his works and Lewis Hines, who we talked about in the last episode, just because these are people who were really showcasing and using photography in particular to break barriers within the world, you know, racially speaking, socially speaking, economically speaking, and just really trying to take on discrimination and injustice in so many ways. And I did not know that he was the director of Shaft until (laughs) I was researching him. And that is so interesting. The other thing I thought was really interesting, just a funny little tidbit about him was that he was also a very talented uh, composer, and that he also both produced and directed 
and composed. So three things. This ballet that was based on the life of Martin Luther King. So I know nothing about this ballet, but I am so intrigued (laughs) just by that story. So you're right. He's a true Renaissance man. Yeah. And Gordon Parks actually came up in an interview I did with documentary photographer Jamel Shabazz, who's going to be the first guest on our new season. You know, Jamel... He's known for his incredible work documenting the early 1980s in New York City and life in in Brooklyn and, and all around. And he really felt a kindred spirit in Gordon Parks. You know, he mentioned that he'd seen those images in life, but didn't realize who the photographer was. But when he found out later on that Gordon really became an important figure for him in wanting to also use his camera to expose what ordinary life was like to break down racial stereotypes that were happening. And, you know, just as an important figure for him to see, you know, that he was there making things happen for himself in the fashion world, in important publications. So really important figure also just for influencing other photographers down the line. Totally. That's such a great point because somebody had to be there first. Somebody had to break those barriers. Uh, There's this wonderful quote that I found when I was researching this where he says, I saw that the camera could be a weapon against poverty, against racism, against all sorts of social wrongs. I knew at that point I had to have a camera. So that's incredibly powerful because photography had obviously been around for a while at this point by the, you know, the 1930s, 1940s, but it hadn't been used quite to the same extent in terms of, you know, political activism. So it's really, I love this. I love his work. We have more great conversation coming up with Jessica Stewart from My Modern Met's Top Artist Podcast right after this quick break. Stay with us. I'm having those doldrums that the dog days of summer bring. It's too hot and I need something to get excited about. I've loved sharing all of the things that I learned from the Great Courses Plus over the years, and I've heard fantastic feedback from so many of you who have signed up too. And now the Great Courses Plus is Wondrium. That's W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M. And it's everything we already loved about this streaming service, but so much more. So if you haven't signed up for Wondrium yet, I don't know what you're waiting for. I recommend checking out the program The Real History of Pirates. But that's not all. Wondrium has thousands of hours of fascinating, mind-blowing video and audio content to explore. Everything from documentaries, tutorials, travel logs, and more. You can also find answers to questions you've always wondered about or even ones that you never thought to ask. So use my special URL to sign up and so that they know that I've sent you. Go to wondrium.com art and for a limited time, sign up and you will get a free month trial of unlimited access. That's w-o-n-d-r-i-u-m dot com art. Wondrium.com art. This episode of Art Curious is brought to you by BetterHelp. There have truly been times in my life where I've needed some assistance to figure out what I wanted from life and how to find the happiness I deserved. And that's why I turned to BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is here to help you too. With BetterHelp, a professional can assess your needs and match you with a licensed professional therapist with whom you can begin communicating in less than 48 hours. And it is so convenient because you can connect from wherever you are in a safe and private online environment 
environment, and you can message, call, or video chat with your therapist, all instead of commuting somewhere and sitting uncomfortably in a waiting room. And BetterHelp also makes it easy to find the right therapist for you. Whether you're looking for help with depression, anxiety, trauma, grief, LGBT matters, self-esteem, or anything, and you don't have to limit yourself to someone who works near your home. Believe me, I've used BetterHelp and it is so easy. And I loved my counselor I connected with. And even if I didn't, it would have been so easy and free to change counselors if I wanted. It's confidential, convenient, professional, and affordable. And financial aid is available. BetterHelp is not a crisis line or a self-help line. It is professional counseling done securely. And check this out. So many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. As an Art Curious listener, you're important to me. And so I want you to start living a happier life today. By visiting our sponsor, BetterHelp, you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling by visiting betterhelp.com artcurious. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's at betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot artcurious. This episode is brought to you by sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. So moving on, we wanted to touch on talking about artists making an impact because it it makes sense to reach out to one of the revolutions of the late 18th century. And so I think you and I both immediately honed in on the French Revolution. So we wanted specifically to talk about Jacques-Louis David today, who was a neoclassical painter, and he did a lot of work prior to the revolution that did what a lot of neoclassical artists did, which is displaying and kind of showing these images of Uh, classical Greco-Roman myth and Greco-Roman history and also some biblical scenes. But then after the revolution, he made this one work in particular that really kind of created an amazing backlash against him, the death of Marat. This is a posthumous portrait of a revolutionary leader and someone who was also a radical journalist and a close friend of David's. His name was Jean-Paul Marat. And he was this very revolutionary um, writer who published for a newspaper called L'Ami du Peuple, or the the Friends of the People, who was spreading anti-monarchist propaganda, basically. And he was murdered while in his bath. And part of that, there's a little bit of background, which was that he suffered from a skin ailment and so oftentimes would sit and he would write his political treatises and articles while sitting in a bathtub to find some relief from his skin issues. And a woman named Charlotte Corday, who was affiliated with another group called the Girodin, who was basically against everything that the Jacobins stood for, snuck into his house, basically saying to Marat's wife that she was, you know, a spy for the other side and that she had names of the people who could possibly be doing anti-revolutionary things. And while basically feeding him these lies about these potential spies, she then reached out and stabbed him in his bath. And 
Marat was a really critical figure in the French Revolution and also the point right after, which is called the Reign of Terror. And what's really interesting is that this was painted a few years after the revolution began. And in those few years, the public's interest in Marat as a person and his ideas and everything he stood for kind of morphed. So he was seen right. as a revolutionary hero and a martyr, but then it changed and people started to vilify him. David, of course, you know, with Marat being a close friend and also sharing the same political beliefs, really plays into that depiction of Marat as a martyr. It's a very dramatic and very theatrical sort of depiction, you know, with the stark background and the sort of murky lighting, and he's there dramatically slumped, almost... You could think it does have the feel of like a religious painting, like an old-school classical religious painting, but obviously there's some modern political implications behind it. So to me, that's what's really interesting, that he sort of married this political art with this very classical style so that if you didn't know the story right away, you would just think it's this sort of beautiful classical, again, almost maybe religious painting. Yes. And what's interesting is that David spent a lot of time in Rome for a while. He won this very prestigious art prize called the Prix de Rome. And while he was there, he basically fell in love with two artists' works. First was Michelangelo, and the second was Caravaggio. So if you think about it, in some ways, people have talked about this kind of dangly arm that Marat is doing, where this one arm is drooped outside of the bath. And there seems to be a connection to a specific painting by Caravaggio, and also to the way that Christ's body is in the Vatican Pieta that mm -hmm. Michelangelo did in 1498. Uh, so he really could be referring to these older masters. But in either case, you're exactly right in that he is referencing works that show the body of the Son of God. So it really was seen as sacrilegious in so many ways to have that what people would think of at the point was kind of an overt reference in art historical terms. So it's really interesting. And it it caused some problems for David. Well, sure, because then the pendulum sort of swings and everyone goes from being for the revolution to, mm, wait a minute, we're not on board with that now. So all of a sudden, you know, Marat and his ideals and David painting him in this sort of idealistic fashion aren't really the best thing for David in his career, I'm sure, at that point. <laughs> totally. And so he was starting to be in hot water, basically, for being too close to Marat and to those kind of revolutionaries. So he had to flee France. And so he went into exile in Belgium, which is why this work is actually in Brussels today, if you ever get to go see it. So he remained there in exile for the rest of his life. And he actually hid this work of art for a very long time because he was worried it was going to be destroyed. And one of his pupils kept it from uh, hiding uh, kept it in hiding for him, and it wasn't really rediscovered until the 1820s after David's death, when a bunch of items from his studio were sold off. So, and even at that point, it was considered too controversial a painting. So it didn't even sell. And it wasn't until later in the 1860s or 1870s that people started thinking more positively about both Marat himself and about this particular painting, that this work then started receiving more critical acclaim. So yeah, a lot of pendulum swinging 
going on in this one for sure. Yeah, and I think when you are dealing with political themes uh, like that, you know, it's so touch and go. And it, it just shows you when we talk about art history, so much of what's popular, what's good is shaped by our public, you know, our current opinions. And so that's constantly evolving. But certainly the artwork makes a big impact for sort of immortalizing this critical moment in, in history and, and sort of crystallizing that into, into a painting. You know, in our last discussion, when we were talking a little bit about Pablo Picasso, you talked about this one critical work of art that really stopped things and changed things in art history so clearly. It just was this moment of crystallization. And I remember a few years back, they take prize in London in relation to this contemporary art prize. They were doing a kind of survey where they asked major art historians, art critics, curators, museum directors, and even some big contemporary artists to choose their number one most important painting of the 20th century. So the thing that would have the biggest impact and the general consensus among most people before the results went out. So just kind of in people talking about it, I suppose you could say, was everybody was saying, oh, it's for sure going to be Picasso. And it's definitely going to be Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. And it ended up not being. And I think that really shocked some people because the work that did become determined as the most important work of the 20th century was Marcel Duchamp's Fountain. So again, <laughs> talking about another <laughs> really important and crucial work of art that's still super controversial today, but that, you, you know, talking about there's the before and after. There's a before fountain and there's after fountain. So I think it makes sense that we get in there and talk about Marcel Duchamp. The idea of the ready-made and that art does not have to be this inaccessible high level or even something that takes meticulous technical skill but it can be created from your your genius and from the irony and the the ideas that you have in your mind because of course this fountain is no ordinary fountain this fountain is a urinal. <laughs> so, I mean, I think <laughs> even now, um, if you talk to some people think, oh, I don't want to go to a contemporary gallery where you just go in and who knows what anything is. And, oh, I could do this. Anything can be art. Well, yeah, that idea oh, comes yeah. from Duchamp because for most of art history, the idea of art for art's sake didn't exist. You made art for the patron. You made art for the king, for the pope, for, you know, who, whoever is paying you. And you were doing works, whether it was sculpture or paintings that were usually sort of historical paintings or religious works. And then it sort of trickled down in the hierarchy to like landscapes, portraits, genre scenes. So the idea that you could just get something that was manufactured and say, well, this is a piece of art, you know, really blowing people's mind of like, what is a piece of art? What makes this art and this not yeah. art? It's a debate that we're still having, but he's the one that really opened that door. Yeah, it was one of those moments where it isn't as much about the physical object as it is about the idea behind the object and, you know, the process of thinking about the artist or both artist and object. So it's one of those moments where you say, well, it's art because I say so. And that's yeah. the end of the conversation in some ways, which is really amazing. But I think what for me, what's most interesting 
again, it's like you're saying, anything can be art. And in this example, it's a overturned urinal with our mutt, you know, supposed artist signature just scrawled across it. <laughs> but what's really interesting is that not only does it redefine what art is or what can be art, but I love that it also redefines who could potentially be an artist. So yeah. take me, for example, I work as an art historian, as a curator. I have zero artistic talent uh, from my <laughs> point of view. I know that a lot of people say everybody has talent, and that's probably true. But I feel myself to be very untalented in the visual arts. But all of a sudden, I could make a work of art just by declaring it to be one. So all of this training that I would have, the talent that I was supposed to have, the time and the energy and the you know the money to get an art education suddenly that doesn't have as much of an impact because I can just be an artist. And that's kind of amazing. I know that's still pretty controversial in a lot of circles, but it is kind of interesting that all of a sudden uh, this freedom is really here for everybody. We can all be artists. Yeah. And there's so many contemporary artists that are sort of Following the footsteps or, you know, playing off of that, I think of Maurizio Catalan, who's an Italian artist who duct taped a banana to a wall. And that, you know, was his piece (laughs) of art. And that's just one of many, many crazy, you know, what I think of crazy. I mean, some people, not everyone, Um, you know, but he's very satirical in his in his approach. And just his mind is so free thinking and creative in that sort of way of Duchamp. And I think of him and, you know, there are other examples as well of contemporary artists that sort of following in that vein and taking what Duchamp did and really running with it. Absolutely. And I love that in some ways you can make a more direct link also to Catalan and Duchamp because didn't Catalan do the gold toilet? also the golden throne yeah i think so that that sounds that sounds exactly like something he would do i also love that i get the opportunity to talk to you as an art historian and a writer but also somebody who has a lot of background in contemporary art too because we we get the best of both worlds in this case the historical background and that we work with contemporary artists yeah it's a nice mix We're taking another little sponsorship break, but come right back because we are discussing the influence and impact of none other than the excellent Frida Kahlo next up on this bonus conversation with top artist. I just recently finished a build onto our house, so I have this amazing new screen porch. And now I am looking for that one special something that will pull it all together and make it a place that I super love to spend time in. And that's why I'm looking at Woodstock Chimes. Woodstock Chimes adds an artful touch to your garden or your patio, and they're also lovely accents for indoor rooms as well. You hang them near an open window in the summer, and you'll hear this beautiful music when the breezes blow. This company offers chimes that are tuned to various melodies and musical scales, and each one is different and delightful. They have beautiful decorative chimes, wind bells, gongs, fountains, and sun catchers to help you create these beautiful tranquil spaces in your home. And a line of personalized chimes that are laser engraved with your own messages prior to shipping. All of them make amazing gifts. You can listen to sound samples on their website, and you'll even find wonderfully large, deep tone chimes that make a huge statement for your gazebo or your entryway and I would love for you to try one for yourself. Listeners to this podcast can get 15% off now by going to chimes.com and using the promo code ARTCURIOUS. That's chimes.com, promo code ARTCURIOUS. Woodstock Chimes, the world's favorite wind chime. 
This episode is brought to you by Storyblocks. Storyblocks is the first unlimited download subscription-based provider of stock video and audio with over 100,000 customers in the TV and video production industry from NBC to MTV to hobbyists looking to enhance their video projects and productions. Today's audiences require compelling video storytelling to win their attention, but making a video can be expensive and really time-consuming. Storyblocks makes it possible to keep up with the growing demand for modern video content so you can bring all your stories to life and stop sacrificing your vision due to time, budget, or resources. Their royalty-free, demand-driven video library is being constantly updated and optimized with templates for use in After Effects and Premiere Pro, and it even includes music, images, sound effects, and more to give you everything you need to bring your stories to life. Assets are royalty-free, so you can use your downloaded content anywhere for commercial and personal use. I recommend trying out their unlimited all-access plan that gives you unlimited downloads of more than 1 million assets in their library, so you can create more and spend less without sacrificing quality. And what's even cooler is that Storyblocks is actively working to change the face of stock footage with more diverse and inclusive content in their library to help creators tell their most unique and authentic stories. Their program, Restock, is their commitment to increase representation in stock media by hiring creators from marginalized communities to create content that is more reflective of the diverse world we live in. To learn more, please visit storyblocks.com slash artcurious. That's storyblocks.com slash artcurious. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So for our last person that we're going to be talking about today, our last impactful artist, we wanted to talk about somebody who really made self-portraiture and an artist's biography a really important or a much more important part of an artist's output, or at least something that was far more accepted from that point out. And this really began in the earlier part of the 20th century. And I am talking about one of my favorite artists, Frida Kahlo. So Jessica, what do you think about Frida Kahlo? So yeah, I mean, Frida Kahlo, we couldn't have an episode talking about impactful artists without mentioning her. Such incredible work and such a unique personality and individually herself. You know, we talked a li- we talked about Artemisia Gentileschi in our last episode, and as a female artist, what a rare representation that was. And we talked a little bit about how biography is sort of sometimes used to interpret her art. Well, with Frida Kahlo, we know 100% her life was her art in such an incredible way, and this was so unique. You know, for for most of history putting your personal business into the art in such a in such a powerful way and also putting yourself into the art so the self-portrait you know I think of you know you can have Raphael who snuck himself into a little self-portrait on the side of School of Athens and there are some self-portraits here and there but that wasn't their main focus of those artists and she really put herself and made herself the protagonist of her own art which is I think why people, are still so so connected with her. I mean, we could go on and on about the number of pieces that she created 
There's self-portrait with the thorn necklace and hummingbird just after her divorce with Diego Rivera that shows her emotional state with this, you know, heavy thorn necklace or the two Fridas, um, again, still after her split where shows her two dueling personalities to even the many, many paintings she did about uh, the chronic pain she was in after suffering from a bus accident when she was in her 20s. So just so unique. And I really can't think of any other artists from that time period. So more modern art, all the way back through history that really put themselves in the driver's seat like she did and, and made herself her own, you know, she was her own muse. She really is incredible because she shows us her life so intimately. And you're right in that she shows a lot of the downsides, a lot of the bad parts of her life, where she is tackling with that chronic pain and she's tackling um, emotional issues, you know, love life, lots of drama going on there. And these are things that you're right, people kept really hidden. And if you're going to have a female artist in particular through a lot of art history, if they're going to show themselves and do a self-portrait at all, it's going to be in a way that makes them look as ladylike and presentable and maybe even as successful or professional as an artist. So you're going to be wearing your finery. You're going to be sitting in front of an easel. You're going to be showcasing yourself in the best possible light. And Frida did some of that too, making herself look pretty glamorous in some of the works. But for a lot of us, we think about these kind of sometimes shocking works where she is in pain, she is bleeding, she is injured. Uh, it's really amazing. And I agree with you in that I think that's something why people are so drawn to Frida Kahlo and why she is still one of the most popular artists today. Because we feel like we know her. We yeah. get this intimate connection with her because she tells us everything that she wants us to know, at least. And I love that. It's hard not to feel something when you see a Frida Kahlo work. Oh, yeah, because the emotion, the the great emotion that obviously went into these pieces, and you said a lot of pieces that talk about suffering, I mean, you feel them when you look at her artwork, that emotion just comes out to you. And I don't know, as, as an art historian, one of the great things that I love about art is when you look at a painting and it just pulls something out of you. And it can by, be by someone famous, someone not famous, whoever. But she is one, I think, of those cases where extremely famous, oh, Frida Kahlo, everyone loves her. But you look at the work and you're like, yes, this is this is why, because it really, it just hits you. I totally see that. And I feel like in some ways, she really gave us permission because just like Duchamp gave everybody permission to basically go nuts and call everything art, uh, she really gives people permission to show the unshowable, to say the unsayable, and open up our lives and become more vulnerable because she was mm. extraordinarily vulnerable in putting her work like this out there. And it's for that reason that I think in some ways there's still some controversy with her works and that some people, I mean, maybe in the minority, I'm not quite sure, but some people don't like it. I'm thinking about my own mother. Sorry, love you, mom. Um, <laughs> she really, but she really doesn't like Frida Kahlo sure. because she finds these really painful to look at and just really disturbing because they are not necessarily pretty. They're not necessarily showing the great parts of mm -hmm. Frida Kahlo's life. And so it's it's hard because they really do affect you regardless. That I mean, that shows the power of them as well. It's still a reaction. And certainly, you know, 
now in the contemporary world, it, it's the norm for people to open themselves up in, in this sort of in this sort of way. And yeah, she really was at the forefront of, of starting that. Very much so. And just to touch on it very briefly, uh, the idea of identity and kind of self-fashioning and putting yourself out there in the way that you want people to perceive you, not just on this emotional biographical element, but the way that she very much donned Mexican dress, uh, indigenous dress, and presented herself as being very Mexican, even though a lot of people forget her father was German, born in Germany. So she was half Mexican and half German, but she almost completely identified by her with her Mexican side of her family and that heritage. So it was something that she very consciously played up in her life and also in her art. So all of these really give us the example of an artist who is presenting themselves as they want to be seen by the world in so many different ways. Well, and even her play with gender identity, I mean, completely revolutionary at that time. That would be revolutionary even now, showing herself in in a suit with short hair, um, very ambiguous, you know, that is, yeah, really incredible that she was doing that in real life, but then also that she knew it was important enough and and an aspect of herself that she was proud of and that she wanted to show. Yes. Just thinking even about, you know, that famous unibrow and the famous Frida Kahlo mustache, (laughs) because... Those are things that, you know, if it was me, I don't have as nearly enough strong self-esteem, perhaps, as Frida Kahlo did. But if that was me, I would be like, oh, I got to get me to a waxer right now. I'm (laughs) not putting that on a painting. (laughs) But she did. And it was something that she said very clearly that she even liked about herself. And in some paintings, comparing them to the photographs of what she actually looked like in real life, she really overemphasized these qualities in some ways. And part of that was, again, this pushback against the idea of what the ideal woman would look like. And also that she liked this idea that she was fluid in that way. She wasn't gender fluid the way that we necessarily think of gender fluidity today. But she did like that she felt like she had some of these traditional masculine elements about her appearance. And she dug it. That's what I think is also super ballsy about her is that she was like, yeah, this is this is the opposite of what other ladies around me are going for. And I am embracing it. And that's really powerful. Yeah, definitely. She is, you know, was unique in her time. And just even now, if you look at the work, it's still revolutionary. So that's definitely an impact. While we're ending up here, tell me a little bit about where people can find you and where they can find top artists and where they can read your works. So you can find the Top Artist Podcast on, you know, iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you you look for our podcast. We come out bi-weekly and we'll be starting our new season at the beginning of August. There's myself and my two other hosts, Samantha Piers and Sarah Barnes. We take turns talking to, to different artists. So you can check that out. And then you can always read mymodernmet.com where we have tons of articles every day about all sorts of creative topics. And so yeah, you can go and binge there. Highly recommend both. So definitely go and subscribe and binge right now to both Top Artist and My Modern Met. And thank you so much for being here with me today, Jessica. Thank this was you. So fun. Yeah, this was really fun. I totally enjoyed it. Let's do it again. Yes. Thank you for listening to this bonus episode of Art Curious today. Make sure that you head over to download the first part of this conversation with Top Artist on their feed if you haven't already and subscribe to both of our podcasts. 
We'll be back with you again in a couple of weeks with more bonus goodies between our seasons. And stick with us later this fall as we explore the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful in art history.